You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will, surely, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of, of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. In your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. She shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By sweat of the face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I realize as the scripture was being read, you're probably thinking to yourselves, this doesn't sound right, right? Where's, where's the empty tomb? Where's the ladies going to, to dress Jesus' body for burial? Where's the angel, the, the stone rolled away? Where is that passage at? Why are we talking about the fall, sin, death that started in Genesis chapter three? Now, if you're thinking that, fair enough. You're, you're right. You're, this is not normal for us to, to dive into this text. But we've been in, in the, the book of Genesis, actually the first three chapters of Genesis, for the last couple of months. We've been in this series called Origins, studying the beginnings. That's what, what Genesis means. Genesis means beginnings. We've been looking at the beginnings of the cosmos of life as we know it as humanity. And what we have seen so far in Genesis chapters one and two is that God, the uncreated creator, creates everything in six days. Out of nothing comes everything. God speaks and things come into existence. And then on the seventh day, God rests, takes a Sabbath. Now before, Jesus, or before God gets to his rest day on the seventh day, the sixth day is really the apex of creation where God creates humanity. Man and woman made in God's image in the Imago Dei sort of the, the, the capstone of the creative event. And as God creates humanity, he, he takes them and he places them in this garden temple, the Garden of Eden. It's this place that's been designed just for them, tailor, custom fit, that these people would be planted in it and it would be awesome for them. They would have everything that they need for life. They'd be able to cultivate the garden, uh, extract the hidden glory that God had, had hidden in it. They would be able to enjoy this creation. And right here, what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, as they stand in Eden, you see humanity poised to live the good life. The life that we all crave to live. You see Adam and Eve taking walks with God in the cool of the day. This fellowship, this union with God. They were tight with God. There was no animosity. There was no running, no hiding. They had a happy marriage. Everything worked relationally between them and God and their environment. The work that they were given was satisfying work. It was hard work, but it was productive and satisfying. And the picture that we receive here in the garden is this idea of of shalom, which is often translated as peace. Um, the, the Hebrew word shalom often as peace, but it's not peace simply in the sense of an absence of conflict, but peace or shalom, meaning that there's wholeness, that there's flourishing, that there's joy and harmony right here in Eden. And what we see is that this was meant to last forever. This was supposed to be the shared experience for all humanity, through all time, through all space. Everything you've ever wanted right there in the Garden of Eden. 
But unfortunately, we see that this, this setup doesn't last very long. In Genesis chapter three, which is what was read today, we see paradise being lost. Now, why? Why? How did they lose paradise? How did they lose the glory, the beauty, the, the shalom of Eden? It's because Adam and Eve, instead of listening to the truth of God, they started believing lies. We see the serpent figure, um, who is Satan, come into the Garden of Eden and start deceiving Adam and Eve. What he does is he takes God's word and he twists it in order to see doubt in both the woman and the man. Eve is given this fruit and, and the serpent says, hey, if you eat this, you'll be like God, right? You'll get elevated. There'll be this, he's saying, really what he's saying, you got FOMO. He's praying on his FOMO. You're missing out on something. God's holding out on you. If you take this, you eat Man, a whole new world will open up for you. And Adam is standing there watching this whole thing happen. And, and the whole time, he doesn't stop her from taking the fruit and eating it. He, too, eats with her. And for the first time ever, we see humans rebel against God. Sin enters into the world. They, they become susceptible to temptation, and sin now dominates their world. This begins a, a whole new era, a dreadful era, a cursed existence, very literally a cursed existence. And, and, and this is really life as we know it. Life, life as we experience it now, we, we have these remnants of the curse that flicker about. And we see the cursedness of this existence pronounced upon them as Genesis 3, midway through, God starts pronouncing the curse where he says there will be enmity between the serpent, who's Satan, and the woman and her seed. This means that there's going to be conflict that goes on between humans and evil. This, this, they're under attack, bombarded with evil and sin, temptation, and ultimately destruction. We see God proclaim the curse over childbirth. Now it's painful. 10 out of 10 moms agree, it's painful, still is. You see marital strife be introduced here where Adam and Eve no longer have the joyful, blissful marriage that they enjoyed back in Genesis 1 and 2. Now there's conflict, there's blame shifting. The household is unhappy. The, the, the work that was once fulfilling and satisfying is now cursed. God pronounces the difficulty for Adam that, that he's going to, by the sweat of his brow, have to go out and earn his bread. He'll have to fight against the elements, the thorns, the thistles that will now plague this ground and make things hard. Like, this is one of the reasons why it's like 60, actually, I think it's even higher. I think 65 to 70% of Americans are unsatisfied, dissatisfied. They're unfulfilled in their work, right? This is a product of the fall. And this really comes to a dreadful end where at the very end of Genesis chapter three, God takes Adam and Eve and he evicts them from the Garden of Eden. The place that God had custom made for them. He says, now, I, I can't let you stay here because there's danger. If you, if you, in your fallen condition, eat from the tree of life, this will be your perpetual state forever. There will be no redemption. And so God removes Adam and Eve from the garden and places an angel with a flaming sword to keep them out. Now, this is, I mean, this is not your... 
This passage is not real cheerful, right? This does not really fit the celebration mindset of, of Resurrection Sunday. Because Adam and Eve go from having it all, everything they could have ever wanted, to being homesick, alone, afraid, and ashamed. We see their, their relationship with God is now fractured, separated from God, removed from where God's presence had dwelt with them. Their, their relationship with one another, the ground, that's also now distorted. And now, death is an unavoidable reality. See, that's part of, part of God's prohibition. When he told, told Adam and Eve, to don't, don't eat from this one tree. There, there's a whole forest full, a whole garden full of yes, but there's one tree that's off limits. And he says to them, the day that you eat from this tree, surely you will die. Well, God is gracious to delay their physical death. They experience a spiritual death as this separation, this divorce from God. But eventually, death will catch up with them. He, he tells Adam, because you're from the dust, you will return to the dust. And so it's no wonder why this event, this catastrophic event that we see in Genesis chapter 3 is called the fall. If you look in your Bible, like the, the headline, the little, little uh, subtitle part of your Bible, it says the fall, right? Because boom, tailspin. And this is devastating, not only for Adam and Eve, because they didn't just mess stuff up for themselves. They messed stuff up for all humanity. Literally all creation feels the effect of the curse of sin that God had pronounced on them. Creation now is distorted, it's ruined. The glory that God had made for it to radiate and, and just shout from the mountaintops is now marred, it's disjointed from God and death will sneak up on everything. And when we look at Genesis three, we see things are simply not the way God intended for things to be. And, and you know this. You know this firsthand. You know that things are not supposed to be the way they are right now. All you gotta do is read through some headlines and see the curse is still very much present and causing all kinds of ruckus. Now, if that's all there is to the story, if this is where it's just, this sets the trajectory and it's just all downhill from here, there's no getting better, there's no hope, then we might as well all be nihilists. We all might as well say, you know, play the fool, eat and drink, be merry, for tomorrow we will die. What's the point? What's the point? It's just all gonna burn up. It's all gonna be destroyed. It's all gonna get gobbled up by death anyway. And this mindset leads to a hopelessness and an unfulfilling kind of existence where humans become despondent. Now, the way that this plays out, we, we see this manifest, that this hopelessness induces a series of addictive behaviors and bouts of self-sabotage. See, when there's, there's nothing to live for, when there's no hope, when there's no bright future ahead, then what's stopping you from destroying yourself? Now, this addictive behavior, this self-sabotage is prevalent in our culture, in the United States specifically. I, I would, I'm no, I'm no uh, sociologist or anything of that nature, but I, I, would, I would be willing to wager 
that the United States, Americans, are some of the most addictive, addicted people in the world. Whether it's substances, alcohol, drugs, whether it's to our screens, social media, television, Netflix, whether it's even to, to good things like food that destroys us with, with gluttony, or, or like going to the gym. We're, we're trying to do one of two things. We're either trying to, to deny the reality of our brokenness or self-medicate so things don't feel quite so bad. And the more that we do this, the more it compounds to our brokenness, offers us a false salvation that only leads us deeper into misery. If this is where the story stops, then it's a real big bummer. But the good news is that Jesus is resurrected. The good news is that that, Genesis 3, is not the end of the story. The world doesn't burn up and burn out. It doesn't swirl down the drain because Jesus has come into the world to save sinners, to restore all things back to himself the way they ought to be. It's through the power of the resurrection that Jesus makes all things new. Now, I really have one, one goal this morning. Uh, one thing, one point to my sermon, and that is that I want to show you that the empty tomb is buried right here in Genesis chapter 3. The empty tomb is promised right here in Genesis 3. For God, redeeming sinners, redeeming the world, bringing things back to the way they ought to be is not an afterthought. When sin enters the world and destroys humanity and creation, God isn't left scrambling to keep up with our stupidity and trying to find a way to fix it, like to jerry-rig humanity in some way. He's not using duct tape. Your sin can't stump God. Since the beginning, God had a plan to reverse the curse of sin, to push back the darkness so that the glory of God in creation, the shalom, the wholeness, the flourishing, the harmony that Eden demonstrated would abound once again so that we as humans could be restored to purpose, to joy, to relationship with God and to one another and ultimately to crush death so that we could have life with and for God. From the beginning, this is God's plan. From Genesis 3, this is God's plan. And there's no quick, there's no easy fix, there's no kind of medicine or technology or methodology that's going to just sort of like snap your fingers, wave the magic wand, and everything's going to be okay now. This remedy is going to be costly. For God to fix all that has been broken, to bring it back, would require a perfect man, a bloody cross, and an empty tomb. And at this point, you might be flipping through Genesis 3 like, hey, Pastor Sam, can you tell me exactly where you see this empty tomb? I'm doing a word search here. I don't see any words about tombs. Well, let me show you where this empty tomb is buried. Turn your attention to Genesis chapter three, verse, verses 14 and 15. 
The Lord said to the serpent, right? This is the deceiver. This is Satan who comes into the garden to bring disruption. Because he brought disruption, God pronounces a curse. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, in this section right here, God goes through and pronounces the curse over the serpent, over the woman, over the man. This specifically is, is pronouncing the curse of sin over the serpent, saying, above all of the other creatures God created, because Satan is a created creature. He's not this yin and yang God or, you know, um, God the white and then uh, Satan the black, and they're just co-equal. That's not at all it. Satan is a created creature, a fallen creature. And God pronounces the curse over Satan, says that you are cursed above all other creatures. You will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, when you're looking at Satan as he takes a serpent form, you're wondering why, why is this, he pronouncing a curse that would slither on his belly if snakes already slither on his belly. This, this is symbolic, this is metaphoric here. He's speaking not specifically to the serpent in its form, but to Satan when he says that you will eat dust all of the days of your life. This is, a, um, this is sort of a metaphor, basically saying you will be a loser, right? You know when you're a kid and you're racing uh, your, your buddies and say, eat my dust, right? Because you're going to burn them out? This is the whole idea that Satan is going to be a loser all the days of his life. Then God then goes on to, to pronounce this enmity, this, this hatred, this conflict that will be between the serpent and the woman, and it will be an ongoing animosity, and it will be carried on by their seed. This conflict, this battle between faith and doubt, between truth and lies. Now, because Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They were deceived, they fell into temptation and sinned. All humanity is now plagued by sin and we must deal with the consequences of our first parents. But there's a glimmer of hope. There's a glimmer of hope that is injected in verse 15 that promise us, promises us that Satan will be defeated. When, when God says to the serpent, he, speaking of the offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, he's speaking that there would be a future offspring who would come into the world and, and break the trend of his own, of, of the earthly Adam, the first Adam, and he would resist the devil that he would not fall into temptation. He would, this offspring would do what, what Adam and Eve failed to do, and he would wage war against the evil one. And not only that, he would win. Now, this is clearly speaking of Jesus, foreshadowing, pointing forward to the day that Jesus would come thousands of years later, where he would duke it out with Satan. And we see in Hebrews 4, Jesus is tempted in every way. There's not a single flaming dart that the enemy didn't throw at Jesus, that Jesus didn't just knock down. In every way, Jesus was tempted, yet he never sinned. 
In fact, what we see, the way that Jesus avoids falling into temptation, into sin, is by using God's truth to fight the lies of the devil. He shuts down the serpent with truth. He pushes back on the darkness with his light. And we see this all through Jesus' ministry where he's casting out demons, he's healing the sick, he's restoring order, he's proclaiming the good news of salvation. Now this enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman comes to a head. There is a massive showdown that verse 15 is talking about, right? Where, where the serpent would bruise Jesus' heel. And that, that's what we see on Good Friday. The serpent, it looks like the serpent won. Face value. Jesus is there naked, hanging on a cross, blood dripping down, being mocked, ridiculed, like his own people have turned against him. They despite that. They would rather have a murderer named Barabbas than they would the Son of God. And in that moment, as, as the darkness creeps in, the sun gets blotted out, the earth shakes, it seems like Satan has won on Good Friday. Jesus is killed, he's discredited, he's silenced. But three days later, Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. See, that is where the empty tomb is buried in Genesis 3.15. This is the proto, call it the proto-evangelium. It's it's the first gospel, the first promise that God was going to crush the enemy. And the way that Jesus did this was by entering the belly of death and destroying it from the inside. Now, sometimes we just wonder, like this kind of flies overhead. How did Jesus do this? How did Jesus enter into death and and destroy it from the inside? Well, we're told, we we had it read earlier from from Romans, that the wages of sin is death. The, The only way you arrive at death is through sin. That's how sin came, or death came into the world was through sin. The wages of sin is death, but what we see is Jesus didn't sin. Jesus didn't deserve to die. Death had no claim on him because he was the one who lived a perfect life. Yet on Good Friday, he willingly took the place of sinners and he paid the price for all sin with his divine blood. The blameless innocent, sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the proof that this payment of Jesus' own blood is is sufficient is that God vindicates him. That on the third day, God raises him from the dead. By the power of God, Christ is raised from the dead and we see now a resurrected Christ. The chains of death have been broken. The power of death is neutralized. And in this moment, what what looks like the humiliation of Jesus there on a bloody cross becomes the humiliation of Satan, where he is rendered in utter failure. He, he He couldn't succeed at destroying the seed of the woman. But in this event, not only does Jesus defeat Satan, but Jesus 
is destroying all of the works of evil that Satan does. Because God's resurrection power is now at work in the world. It is redeeming that which has been broken. It's repairing what the moths have ate, what rust has destroyed. By the power of the resurrection, God is taking the broken things and making them whole once again, reintroducing the shalom of Eden. Now, how is this the case? How is it that God does this? Well, not only did Jesus absorb the wrath of God for sin on the cross, Jesus absorbed the curse that God pronounced on all creation on the cross. The curse was absorbed by Jesus. Check this out. As God pronounces the, the brokenness, the, the, the futility of, of the lives of humanity, right? You've got painful child, childbirth. You've got dis, disgruntled relationships. You've got difficult work. You've got thorns and thistles that are crowding the earth. You've got the sweat of the brow that you've got to earn your bread. All of these things, the curse, the enmity, God or Christ takes it upon himself. The work of redemption meant pain and sorrow. The whole Good Friday is, is the, the pain and agony that Jesus entered into. Even before it started, he knew what was coming in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. The agony of the curse resting on Jesus. We see the thorns of the curse placed upon his head in a crown of thorns, pressed into his skin. Not just thorns, though, nails piercing his hands and his feet. This agony that he experiences, much like the, the agony experienced in giving birth, because what was going on was God was giving birth to a new creation. Jesus, the firstborn of the new creation, renewing the cosmos, the resurrected world, the new heavens, the new earth, was beginning right here, and it came through pain. This all-encompassing vision of God's redemption, not just dealing with the penalty of sin, but, but dealing with the power of sin, was part of God's vision of redemption ever since Genesis chapter 3. He had the plan before the world was ever created that he would one day put on flesh so that it could be broken, his blood could be shed, and so he would redeem it. To save people, sinners like you and me from the tyranny of the, of the devil, from destruction of sin, and to do this, he would send his sinless son into the world to pay the price for sin, to absorb the curse, to reverse it, so that whoever trusts in him would be saved by grace through faith. This is what happened on that resurrection Sunday thousands of years ago. And, and as this work of redemption begins, you might be thinking, if Jesus crushed the serpent then, why is it that we still experience evil? Why, why is it that we can see evil still running, it seems, with a, a pretty healthy head of steam? Why, why do we still feel the effects of the curse? World War II was over at Normandy Beach, D-Day, 
That, that was the definitive moment when the war was over. Like that battle set it, it was just sealed the deal. But the reality of that victory didn't really kick in until 336 days later on V-Day, when officially the war was declared over. So there you have that one event that really ended the war, but there wasn't an official ending of the war until almost a year later. And in the same way on the cross, Jesus says, it is finished, that, that, that death blow was given. And right now what we're experiencing is the time that it takes to shake that reality out. And each Easter, we move closer and closer to that glory, going back to the shalom that God intended for humans to enjoy, where the, the kingdom of heaven would be consummated, that heaven would come down to earth and all things will be made right. So not only the power of sin neutralized, not only the penalty of sin dealt with, but one day the presence of sin would be completely eradicated. No more sorrow, no more tears, no more sin, no more curse, all evaporated. So in the same way that we say Jesus is risen, we say Jesus will come again. Jesus will bring his kingdom once again. But in the meantime, as, as things are being shook out, part of this shaking out of, 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 of V-Day, or of, of D-Day, is that God is being patient with sinners. God is giving us time and grace now to turn from the sin and destruction that destroys us to decide if, if we will either follow Jesus or follow Satan. Those are your only two options. It's either you, you follow Jesus, you see that he, he died for you, he's your Savior and your Lord, and you follow him, you trust and obey him, or you follow the serpent. You run from God in rebellion and you chase after the devil. And this doesn't mean like bowing down at the altar of Satan. This, this can very much look like the quest for autonomy, of being your own God, setting your own rule, detaching yourself from God. So you either follow Jesus or you follow Satan. You either eat the forbidden fruit or you eat the Lord's Supper which is Christ's body broken for you, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. One meal leads to destruction and the other leads to the resurrection of life. Friends, the reason why we celebrate this morning is because Jesus has come into the world to save sinners from our own folly, to save sinners from death and the grave and to give us life to the fullest. Jesus came to push back darkness, to reverse the curse, to pay for sins, to restore all things back to himself. Jesus came to mend what is broken, namely your heart. He came to heal your hurts and your wounds, to fill up what is empty. It is by his wounds we are healed. It is through the empty tomb that we are filled up. This is why we celebrate. This is why Resurrection Sunday is a joyous day. It's why Genesis 3 doesn't get the last word. God promises victory through Christ Jesus. 
So Christian, take heart. Though the world looks like it's in all kinds of trouble, it looks like it's swirling down the drain, Jesus wins. The enemy has been defeated. Sin, death, and the grave will one day be totally eradicated. And until that day comes, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come fill your people with your spirit. Enable us to follow after you all of the days of our lives. Let us be agents of reconciliation, helping you to speed along the process of the renewal of all things. We get to be involved in God's redemptive story. He doesn't just save us and put us up on the shelf and say, you know, that's that. He calls us into action. And so in the power of the resurrection, let us partake of this meal together. Let us remember that the power of Christ is stronger than the power of sin. That resurrection is greater than death and the grave. And Jesus wins. Let us pray. Father, thank you that in Christ we are more than conquerors. We thank you that Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves. And this morning as we come to the table, we are reminded of his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. But we also point our eyes to the empty tomb, the fact that Jesus, you are right now living and active, you are seated at the right hand of the Father, that you are ruling and reigning over all of the cosmos, interceding for your people right now. We ask that your spirit would move in us so that we would be enabled to follow you all of the days of our life. That goodness and mercy and shalom would abound here in this city and far beyond. We pray this for your glory and for the joy of all people. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.